So today we pick up on part three of a five-part series entitled, A Googled Faith, When the Answers You've Been Fed Don't Add Up. And if you're uh, visiting us today, maybe you're here for a baptism, or maybe a friend told you to come and uh, check out our church, you need to know that uh, this series began when I was sitting at a Starbucks on a, on a Monday morning, and I sat down next to two young women, both with their Bibles open in public, and they were discussing matters of faith, questions like, does God really help those who help themselves? Does everything happen for a reason? And the question we're going to explore today, is every word in the Bible true? And I heard them uh, having this conversation, and they began asking themselves, well, if you believe that, then do you believe this? And as a Presbyterian minister, I began to shake. I wanted in the conversation. But they didn't ask me. So we created a sermon series to talk about it. <laughs> and so uh, if you are one, one of those folks who likes to follow along with scripture, uh, I see some of you, you have your Bibles already open. Um, keep the page, but put it right next to you. We're going to get to the scriptures in a minute. I, I, I want you to imagine that you're sitting at your Thanksgiving table. Got it? You're sitting there, uh, your kids have uh, come home, or maybe you have a newborn and the high chair is situated right next to you. All of your family has come in from all over the country, and then there's uh, your special Uncle Eddie. We all have one. Eddie is sitting down at the end of the table, and halfway through Thanksgiving supper, Eddie says something like this. Well, I don't know about you, I just believe that every word in the Bible is true. How do you respond to Uncle Eddie? I grew up in South Carolina, and this is what I know. Depending on how I respond to my Uncle Eddie, my words can turn into fighting words pretty quick. I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of. How we respond and how we understand Scripture can be a divisive thing. But this is what I've learned. Even uh, my Uncle Eddie, I still call him Uncle I still love him. I still belong to him. And this is what's incredible. No matter what we talk about at the Thanksgiving table from year to year to year, everyone in my family agrees to continue to show up. I think the image of the Thanksgiving table is an important one for us this morning. It's an important and, and a good image as we begin to explore this question. Is every word in the Bible true? It's important because each of us are from diverse backgrounds. For instance, raise your hand if you were born and raised here in the great state of Texas. Woo! Look at that. Now raise your hand if you weren't born in the great state of Texas, but you got here as fast as you could. <laughs> That's important for us to recognize because where we are born, who we were raised by, uh, the, the faith tradition in which we were raised can influence how we answer this question. Some of us were born and raised in the Presbyterian Church USA. Some of us were not. And yet we bring the theologies, the teachings, the Bible studies, and the sermons with us from our past into the very pews in which we sit this morning. But the Thanksgiving table. What if we committed this morning to let... This exploration, 
lead us deeper in debate? Yes. What if we let it uh, lead us deeper into discussion? Yes. What if we agreed not to let these words turn into fighting words? Words that would cause us to get up from the Thanksgiving table and never return back. Uh Uh-uh. What if we committed that as this family of faith, that we're going to keep coming back to the table, that we're going to lift up every voice, and that we're going to enter a conversation and a flow that may lead us to deeper truths than we could arrive at on our own. And the only way that I know how to do that, the only way that I have come to find in my life where that is possible, is to pray for the guidance of the Spirit. So let us pray. Remind us, O God, Remind us that you hovered over the waters of creation, that you literally hovered over the chaos and the darkness of our world to bring forth order and light. So remind us that you hover over our very lives and over this very sanctuary this morning to bring light and love. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Like I said, I grew up in South Carolina, and one of my favorite weeks of the entire school year was the very first week of school. The very first week of school was always used to get the schedule and the routine down in every single class. But I love that first day of school every year, the day when our teachers would hand us our new textbooks for the year. It was one of my favorite days because I loved when the textbooks got handed to me to open the cover of the book and to look at all the names that were listed right there on the front cover of who had the book before I did. Like the one year that uh, I got Donnie's book, I got his English book, and I got to tell you, I was a little surprised to find a name in the cover of the book because the book looked brand new, and then I read that it was Donnie's book, and I said, oh, that makes sense. I bet Donnie never used this thing. (laughs) Or the year I got my math book, and I opened the book, and there Ashley Morris's name was, and I thought I had struck gold because Ashley Morris was the smartest person in the whole class above me, and I thought, oh man, I hope Ashley Morris left all the answers to every equation in her textbook so I don't have to do homework the whole year. She didn't. (laughs) The first homework assignment of the year was to take uh, those textbooks home and to cover them. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the ancient practice of covering your books, (laughs) I'd like to educate you for a moment. Covering your books meant that you would take your books home and you would cover them in the brown paper bags that you got at the grocery store in order to protect said books from dirt and grime and pen marks and the wear and tear of your locker. It was believed that if you added a millimeter thick piece of paper to a cover of a book that was 800 pages long and weighed 27 pounds, that it would prolong the life of the book. So every year, 
I would go to the grocery store with my mom, the Kroger on Whiskey Road, and we would choose paper instead of plastic. I would go home. I would cut the bottom off of said paper bags. I would begin to fold them exactly right around the corners of the book. I would get the tape, and I would tape the uh, corners just so, and then I would go to the drawer in the kitchen. You know what drawer I'm talking about, the drawer where things go to die. (laughs) And always in that drawer in our kitchen, if I looked long enough, I could find different colored Sharpies. And I would pull out the different colored Sharpies, I would go back to the books that I would cover, and I would write on them, math, and I would write it in blue Sharpie. Then I would get the black Sharpie, and I would write history. And then I would get the green Sharpie, and I would write science. And then whatever my elective book was, I would write in red. Because the hope was, in between classes, I would go to my locker. I would not have to think about what book to grab on en route to the right class. I would just pick the green one when I was going to science, or I'd get the black one when I was going to math. Because having the right book for the right class matters. I mean, if you take your English book, to science class, what good does that do you? And yet, somehow we're tempted. Somehow we're tempted to cover the Bible with one cover and label it in one color, gold, usually tinsel, and give the Bible names like Holy Word, Holy Bible, Moral Teaching, Purification Codes, Rock of Faith, Life's User Manual, God's Infallible Word. And yet the Bible is not really a book. The Bible is more more like a, a library made up of 66 books, every book in need of its own cover. Covers like law, prophets, poetry, gospels, Torah, letters, apocalyptic literature. When we're opening uh, the cover of the Bible, we're opening books, and we gotta be clear on what cover is on what book we open. We got to take the right book to the right class. You can't take your English book to science class. There's 66 books in the Bible, 39 of which are in the Old Testament, all of them written in Hebrew. And think about this. When the Hebrew language was coming about, it was written only in consonants. That's right, vowels were added later, and vowels consist of adding dots above or below consonants. So think about this. If you added an extra dot, the size smaller than a period, if you added an extra dot above a consonant, or if you left one of those dots out, you could change the entire meaning of a word, of a phrase, of a sentence, of an entire passage. The New Testament are made up of 27 books. They're all written in ancient Greek, a a dead language now. In ancient 
Greek that we have is a sophisticated and mathematical language that doesn't have any punctuation. Think about that. So every place in your New Testament that you see a comma or a period or a question mark or even more importantly, a paragraph break, someone or a group of persons have interpreted those passages across the ages and added punctuation. There are grammar teachers sitting in the pews this morning thinking this. Do you know grammar can be deadly? There is a difference between let's eat grandma and let's eat, comma, grandma. Everybody caught up? We good? (laughs) The same is true in the New Testament. So when we ask this question that is before us, uh, is every word in the Bible true? Which words are we speaking of? Are we talking about every single word found in the Bible? And if we are, what do we mean by true? I think um, our passages this morning are a great place to start, and this is why. Because the Bible, as we know, has a way of contradicting itself. We have some people at my Thanksgiving table that say, I'm a Christian, I just believe in the New Testament. We have some places in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament that contradict themselves. What are we to do with the passages and the words that contradict themselves? We're going to go um, to the very beginning. We're going to open our Bibles to page one. Uh, It's a book called Genesis. And here's the deal. If we were to put a cover on this book and to give this book a title, a good title for the book of Genesis would be The Book of Beginnings. And I'm going to read for us just out of Genesis 1. And if you're following along, uh, this is what you need to know. I'm going to read creation's account of day one, and then I'm going to jump ahead much later in the week to when the account of when and how humankind was formed. So listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. Listen for the deeper truth. Listen for the Spirit's guiding through these heavy and important words. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea. When God's wind swept over the waters, God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness, and God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Then God, this is much later in the week, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply 
Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the, in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees who, whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food to all wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes. I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything God had made, and it was supremely good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. We can hear it. Can you hear it in the first account of creation? God says something, and creation responds. God creates through merely speaking. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We come to learn in this very, the very first lines of Scripture that God can create through the power of God's word. That there is power in God's word. Let there be light. God doesn't create. By power? By force? By overtaking another creation? God creates by merely speaking creation into being. God is transcendent in Genesis 1. And we also learn that when God speaks God's creation into being, God sees what God's what God creates is good. Not as something to merely be discarded. And we learn in Genesis 1 that God loves God's creation so much that God creates people, persons, humankind in the very image of God. Genesis 1, God speaks, creation responds. And then we have an entirely different account of how God creates in Genesis 2. So if you're following along, turn with me to Genesis 2. And we're going to turn to verse 5. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, you can already hear how different this is. The Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. Human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed in the fertile land the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit. And he also grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. You hear how different the second account is. In Genesis 2, on the same page of the Bible, God is not just merely transcendent, speaking creation into being. Uh Uh-uh. Much more intimate than that. God is an actor. 
God is a part of creation and creating. God is interested in the very details and the messiness of the world. That's why we have the image of God is the first farmer. Any of you who have ever been on a farm who, or who have a garden, you know how messy and smelly and complicated that work can be when you dig your hands into the soil. And yet that work is holy and sacred. We learn in Genesis 2 that God is the first gardener, that God has God's hands in creating and, the on, and in the ongoing creation of the world. God is that close that intimately involved in creation. Which, if we ask the question before us, is every word in the Bible true? That question then leads us to this. Which one of these accounts are true? Because they seem to contradict themselves. Did God create on the sixth day? Or did God create from the very beginning? we first got to know uh, what book that we've carried to class. we got to recognize uh, when we pick up the book of beginnings, it didn't have a green lettering on the back of it. We have not taken our science book to English class. We need our English book. Because if we have our English book and we read these first pages of Genesis, what we read is poetry. And what is poetry meant to communicate? Matters of the soul, the depth of life, and love. The original authors of Genesis, the Hebrew people, they're not trying to tell us when the world was made or how God made it. They're trying to tell us something deeper. They're trying to tell us of their deepest understanding of who God was and who God is. This is not about seven days. Or presenting us a story that will somehow get us hung up on whether or not dinosaurs existed. If we stop at the mere words on the page, we miss the base notes. The level of truth that is below these words. It would be like uh, this, my friends. If you went to a rehearsal dinner, I think we've all been to a rehearsal dinner. It would be like uh, if we were at a rehearsal dinner for Maggie and Mark. And every person that stood up to give a speech that night only said these words. You know, Maggie and Mark really love each other. You know, Maggie and Mark, uh, they really, really love each other. Maggie and Mark, they love each other tonight, and uh, I'm glad they're getting married. You know, Maggie and Mark, they love each other. If we stay on the surface level and we don't get below the surface, we miss the flesh that is flesh that is love we want to hear the stories of why maggie and mark actually love each other it's, you remember that time that maggie moved to town and mark showed up with his buddies and they unpacked that entire u-haul truck man they thought they were a lot younger than they really were those guys unpacked that truck it took them all day they couldn't walk for a week but man they got that truck unpacked quick hey you remember that time that uh maggie's mom got sick. You remember how Mark would go to the hospital every single day and sit by that bed? He didn't miss a day. That's when I knew they really loved each other. You remember when uh, Mark's brother got that diagnosis? 
I don't know if many of you know this, but Maggie uh, would write him. She'd cut out these little prayers and put them in the cards, and she sent him faithfully. Nobody asked her to do it. That's when I knew they were going to be part of the family. We got to get to the flesh of love that is below mere words. Question, my dear friends. Question that is before us, uh, which of these is true? Mm, I don't think it's the best question. The best question is, why did the author find it important to include these two stories of God creating human beings in the very first pages in the, of the book of beginnings? Why do we include differing accounts? I don't know about you, but for me, it's because we need both attributes of God. We need a God, I don't know about you, but we need a God who can hover over the chaos and the darkness of our lives and speak forth God's word and by the power of God's word create a new way to bring light in the midst of the darkness that we are experiencing, to make order out of the chaos that is our families or our world, just as much as we need a God who is intimately involved in the ongoing creation the world and our lives, a God who knows us so intimately that God breathed life through our very nostrils. So is every word in the Bible true? As Presbyterians, yes feels like too simple of an answer. Because as Presbyterians, we believe that every word of the Bible, every single one of them, is capable proclaiming a truth about God and about our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. So does that mean that we take every word of the Bible literally? No. We don't take every word of the Bible literally because the Bible was written in different languages. It was written by people uh, in an entirely different culture, people who lived on a continent that is different than the continent that we currently sit on. Our task, our invitation, is to converse with the passages and with one another to discern what the Spirit is saying to us in our time and our place. And the only way that we can do that is by doing it together and arriving at those deeper truths. Because we learn in the book of beginnings that our God is bigger than one single story. And thanks be to God for a God like that. Because all of us have different stories. All of us have different relationships. All of us have different beliefs about the divine. There's not a single narrative that can encapsulate all of our relationships in their entirety. And thanks be to God that our text recognized this in the very beginning and showed the breadth and the depth of life and faith. Show us the breadth and depth of holy God. So imagine that uh, you're at the Thanksgiving table. 
this coming year. And Uncle Eddie sitting right down where he always sits. And Uncle Eddie asked the question that he always asked. I don't know about you, but I believe every word in the Bible is true. What do you think? What if we asked Uncle Eddie this year? Uncle Eddie, what have you experienced in your life for you to believe that's true? Can you tell me about those moments of holiness? I don't know about you. That's a conversation that I would want to be a part of. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your presence throughout all generations. Thank you for the particular ways that you speak to us and remind us, oh God, that you are big enough that our stories are included in your story. Thanks be to God for that. Amen.